Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon. This is the Starship Sober. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Sure. Now get this. 545. Yes, I am your host, Tony C. Smith. What's going on? Well, as this is a science fiction show... We're going back in time, because for whatever reason, I missed out 454, which is Aaron Emmel. Now, Aaron, I don't know how that came about, but I just, I missed out. It it must be down to the bees, to be honest. That's all I can say. It was down to the bees, because we just were like, you know, flying along, and it was Gary that dropped us the line. Gary kind of looks after the, you know, the show along with jeremy and i mean we're on last week was five four seven so we've done a little bit of a wobble there you know what i mean so and gary said did you know you've uh, you've missed this and the nice thing as well aaron has said he would donate his wages you know the payment for the story for the the upgrade of the starship sofa little little computer the big computer there so he put it towards it oh aaron said i owe you a pint of lager if you ever come over to england thank you so much so I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. First off is, like I say, this story by Aaron Emmel, A Small Price to Pay, which was originally appeared in Planet Sanctum, February 2018. Then we have the end of the month, and it is, it's 10 years since Jim's been doing this show. So we've got Science News, and I've had a listen to it. <laughs> Get audio shocking, Jim. Ten years, you think you might be able to get it. I know he had trouble with his computer. <laughs> the first few seconds are just hideous, and then it goes into the kind of the bottom of the well scenario as well. So it's, Jim must be still having trouble there with his computer. So anyway, but it has been ten years. Wow, man. And I'm sure he'll get it. It's like me, man. We're using the same thing. Betsy here. I'm using... Betsy and man it's taken it's still there it's still red hot and thank you for everybody that's kind of I had had email after email message and everything like that just giving a little hoovering the back to Tony it's dead it's gone you know from from the salvage to the kind of no hope scenario so well what I did with my computer I you know did that re, you know, like wiped everything off, and that wasn't even straightforward. You know, you watch a video and you think, right, put the the whatever you know operating system on the USB, and you know, we'll go from there, wipe it. And it just didn't follow that scenario at all. Do you know what I mean? Got it on the seat, got it on the, the, the USB drive, the Mavic, I think it's the High Sierra. What do you call it, operating system? And no, no, no. But somehow, I don't know how, but I wiped it all clean. But it's obviously the programs I'm using now, you know, are just too big for this this girl. And like I say, I'm touching all down that kind of left-hand side, down and then along to the top. Yeah, it's bloody boiling. So what I do, I'm just, you know, there's no, but there's been no brave soul yet stepped up and kind of offered to help out. So we're, this is it, you know what I mean? I'm just going as as long as she goes, but and knock it off now, straight away, after this record, it's off, she's put to bed for a week, so, so, that's a habit I need to kind of get out of there, let's get into the main fiction, like I say, a small price to pay by Aaron Emmel, Aaron's stories have appeared in numerous publications, he is also the author of dozens of essays, a historical, historical fiction graphic novel, 
and the science fiction game book series Midnight Legion. Find him online at aaronemmel.com. This story is narrated by Tatiana Gray. Tatiana is critically acclaimed actress of stage, screen and audio booth. She has been nominated for dozens of fancy awards but hasn't won a single damn thing. She went to New York University and lives in Brooklyn, New York. You can find her at tatianagray.com. So... The Starship Sova is... Aaron, I'm really sorry there. Tatiana, I'm really sorry. We're a few weeks in delay. Very proud to present. A Small Price to Pay by Aaron Emmel Narrated by Tatiana Gray Walk as though you are accustomed to firm ground beneath your feet. Shake your hair loose. Let your arms swing away from your body. Increase the length of your strides as though you've spent your entire life surrounded by abundant space. More space than could ever be explored or exhausted. But keep your head down. Because here on Earth, you are not a free woman of the new cities. You are a subject of the perpetual empire. Solana Grain repeated all of Frank Degain's advice to herself as she followed him from the edge of the secure zone, where the cab had dropped them off, past four blocks of government-owned office buildings that lacked signs or logos. She knew they were being watched. She avoided gawking at the steel-sheathed towers looming above her. She did not turn or flinch as a pair of world-walkers emerged from the building's shadows. She felt their eyes examine her. The trick was to avoid looking back. Pretend you can't see what's really around you. That's how to survive on Earth as an Ivan. Ignore danger. Look weaker than you are. Amanda would have walked right past the World Walkers without betraying her fear. She always looked like she was exactly where she was meant to be. But you're not here. Solana thought to her sister. I have to do this on my own. She ordered Haria to keep her calm by regulating her cortisol and adrenaline levels. Two minutes later, she and her guide were at Genocorp's sealed outer doors. No, she reminded herself. Not Genocorp. Genocorp is gone, along with the United States and our home and everything I remember from before. This is the perpetual empire. This isn't the place I left. But when she breathed in, Solana smelled soil and plants and concrete and a thousand other once-familiar scents that she had forgotten. The omnipresent atmosphere of her childhood. Can the subject next to me open the lock? Degain's voice was an urgent whisper. Solana refused to answer to that label. She studied the keypad screen. Someone must have entered not long ago, because by enhancing her infrared vision, she could just make out the dissipating heat left by the finger taps. Solana pressed a series of six digital squares, starting with the one marked by the faintest heat signature, which identified it as the first one to be touched. An old trick with new tools. As her fingers tapped the screen... Haria easily defeated the biometric sensors. A dozen meters behind her, the World Walkers stopped. To all appearances, she and Degain had authorization. Solana and her guide stepped through, and the doors closed and locked again behind them. Soft light bloomed in the ceiling far above as they made the long trek across the gleaming slate-tile floor. Dark paintings in massive frames dominated the walls, their images shifting as Solana and Degain passed to show them how they would look with the center's proprietary biomodifications. Solana stretched out her senses, remotely hacking into the center's administrative programs as they walked, tracing the building's layout, cataloging its encrypted databases, and analyzing its defenses. In the nearly ten hours Solana had been on Earth, she had appreciated her power for the first time, 
The Ivan Rhea had been created on Earth, for Earth. And now, flexing her powers, she understood what that meant. She could send her awareness, soaring with the drones that maintained situational awareness in the nitrogen-rich skies. Could command machines and devices that didn't even exist on Neptune's orbiting station. New senses were available to her. Old, latent powers built for Earth trembled at her passage and stirred to serve her. And this building, this site in the former state of Virginia, was where the Ivan Rhea had been created. It's upstairs, Degane said. He kept his voice low. Are we safe here? Solana whispered back. The security system had informed her that there were three other people in the building. One, the individual they had followed in, was riding up one of the elevators. Two more people were on the ninth floor, one story above Solana and Degane's destination. Cameras had captured images. One male, one female, both armed. Guards? Her companion nodded and tapped the pocket where he kept his data square. This key is continuously sending out a stream that says these subjects are allowed to be here. Degain had tried to project confidence since she'd met him in the Baltimore spaceport. He'd had advice and plans, but it was evident from a thousand tiny tells that he was hiding something from her. With Degain as her guide, she was alone, worse than alone, almost three billion miles from home, and aware that her own Rhea could betray her at any moment until she found what she was looking for. A high-ranking subject of the Empire had to have a reason to risk smuggling an Ivan onto the planet. The promise of the electronic and mineral contraband Solana had brought with her had started the conversation, but it was not motivation enough. Degane was a quantum engineer, good enough for his reputation to have reached the Neptune Republic and for him to rank as a technical quester here on Earth with unrestricted travel privileges throughout the Northeast American subjugate. He had no public political views, of course, which was why he enjoyed the freedoms he did. But his wife and infant daughter had disappeared a few years earlier, and in circumstances that suggested the handiwork of an artificer imperator, one of the Empire's ruling caste. Almost subconsciously, Solana now instructed her Ivan Rhea to demand an update on Degain's physiology, and the therapeutic nanomachines swarming through her veins instantly complied. They accessed live data from the reactive, first-generation Rhea in Degain's blood, the only version of the Rhea publicly known and legal here on Earth, and informed her of higher-than-baseline readings of adrenaline and an accelerated heart rate. Degain was anxious, and the closer they got to the encrypted records on the Ivan Rhea, the more nervous he seemed to become. Solana thought of her sister, lifted her chin, and walked more swiftly. The elevator, when they reached it, didn't move. Another security measure. It would only respond to a streamed five-digit key. Can the subject next to this one access what they perceive to be the lift? Degain asked as the doors shut. Solana didn't answer. Silently, she instructed her Rhea to cycle through letter and number combinations, a series of five alphanumeric characters translated to 60,466,176 potential passwords. Horea continued the brute force hack attempt for five and a half minutes. For a moment, the backs of Solana's hands started to burn. She rubbed her skin, recalling the pain of her last flare-up, but the sensation passed as quickly as it had come. Then a green light switched on above the elevator door. Degain sucked in his breath, awed, and some additional, better-hidden emotion. Envy? They started to rise. Solana instructed the building's security system to update her on the building's other occupants. Whomever they had followed in was in an administrative suite on Level 3. The pair on the ninth floor had split up, but both of them were near the east stairwell. On the eighth floor, Solana and Degain passed through an airlock and proceeded into the Biosafety Level 2 facility. 
Solana walked past sterilized lab coats on racks, tubs of plastic shoe covers, and buckets of safety goggles. Offices and labs illuminated themselves as they approached. This is it? Solana asked. This is where the Ivan Rhea were created. All Rhea, Degain answered as they passed closed lab doors. The first-gen Rhea to begin with, and then the Ivan Rhea that were supposed to replace them before the Ivan Rhea were destroyed. He glanced at her and corrected himself. Most of them, anyway. They passed a door labeled Formulation Room, beyond which a gleaming stainless steel machine waited motionless beside a rack of sealed glass vials. In the next room, through the glass, Solana saw a work table in front of refrigerated storage units, labeled with biohazard signs. A few doors down from that, Degain stopped. Solana looked through the window. Inside was a small lab with antique equipment that looked like it hadn't been used for decades. On the counter was a black slab of plastic standing on its edge. A computer from her childhood. Around the lab's doors was a border of dampening field generators. No stream could pass in or out. Here, Degain said. He rubbed his forehead and shifted on his feet. But despite his evident anxiety, his gaze was locked on the door as if nothing else existed. His fixation made Solana suspicious, but a quick glance around didn't reveal anything out of the ordinary. Then she enabled her infrared vision and saw the heat signatures of two figures through the walls hurrying toward their corridor from an intersecting hallway. She accessed the security system. They were the man and woman from the ninth floor. Even before she amplified her hearing, she heard their boots pound the tiles. Let's go, she whispered to Degain. She started to pivot in the direction of the elevator, realized she wouldn't make it in time, and turned to the door. The handle was locked, and, because of the dampening field, she couldn't probe it for weaknesses. The man and woman appeared in the hall. They had their guns out. A pair of black decision-makers. Run! Solana hissed it again. I'll try to delay them. The pair wore charcoal firm-flex suits that could change their weave to adjust to the ambient temperature or slow a projectile. Solana raised her hands and backed against the wall as the barrels of both guns swung towards her. She faced the couple the way she knew her sister would have faced them, with her expression uncompromising. She could incapacitate them instantly. They were rea-bonded, and their first-gen rea would take orders from hers. She could force their major muscle groups to contract at the same time. She could cause them to drop their guns. But then they and whoever had sent them would know she was an Ivan. This subject can explain, she began, and the man dipped his gun and fired. A bullet tore through her thigh, and she gasped at a scream as she collapsed, folding in on herself and falling to the floor. Her antagonists approached, their guns still on her. She moaned, and the moan turned to a sigh as Haria pumped out painkillers. Already the nanomachines were congregating at the wound and beginning their repairs, coagulating blood and knitting muscle back together. But they couldn't repair too much, not too quickly, she thought, as she forced them to slow. She couldn't allow herself to be seen to heal more easily than a normal bonded human would. Look weaker than you are. The woman bent down toward her, pulling out a pair of handcuffs. Curling tails of black ink were tattooed from her lower eyelids. By that time, Solana understood what was happening. She tried to twist around, to see Degain, but he had already stepped out of her field of vision. His words had cued the attack. Both guns had been aimed at her. Even before she saw the bands, marking the restraints as dampening field handcuffs, handcuffs that were useful against adversaries with concealed or implanted tech, but were essential for subduing an Ivan. She knew that she had been betrayed. She struck out with her good leg and sent her wedged-eyed assailant toppling to the side. A new burst of pain accompanied the motion and momentarily overwhelmed her endorphins. She ground her teeth as the man crouched quickly and snapped his own cuff around her left wrist. Solana startled herself awake, thrashing against her restraints. She was bound by her wrists and ankles to a metal table in a small room that looked like a lab with all of its equipment removed. The electrochromic glass of the walls and door 
had been switched to black. She instructed Haria to release serotonin to help calm her down as she took stock of her situation. Her mouth was uncovered. The realization struck her with a quick jab of fear. It meant that even if she was still in the research center, as she appeared to be, her captors weren't concerned about her being discovered or rescued. She tried to access the stream, but nothing happened. She was still surrounded by a dampening field, her awareness trapped in her body. Her leg was completely healed. Haria had done their work. But her fingers and toes still tingled, just as they did before one of her increasingly frequent attacks. According to the time kept by Haria's Duroquino and brains, she had been here for twenty minutes, meaning that it had been half a day since the last debilitating flare-up. She was overdue. What would you do, Amanda? Solana wondered. She imagined her sister lying there, surveying her options. Solana told Haria to stop regulating her biochemistry. She concentrated on her ragged breathing until it eventually evened out and slowed. Gradually, she felt her muscles relax. She tried to reach out with her trapped hand to the sister who wasn't there. Twelve years ago, she and Amanda had left Earth together. She remembered Amanda's hand clutching hers, her grip turning her fingers numb. She remembered their parents' faces as they strode through the middle of the fenced-off street, her mother's bearing, regal, and purposeful, her father's grim and controlled. She remembered the crowd and their glares, the signs they had shaken as her family passed, the unleashed fury of their chants, Ivan off Earth! Ivan off Earth! She remembered the terror and naked shame of fleeing. Only much later had she realized that they weren't forced to flee because they were weak. They were cast out because they were powerful. Solana strained helplessly against her manacles as Degain entered the room. Why are you doing this? she demanded, craning her neck to look up and across at him. He stood for a moment at the door, watching her as if to make certain that she was truly bound. She sent Haria a barrage of orders that the dampening field prevented them from executing. Degain moved closer. She collapsed back against the table. What do you want? He stopped when he reached her. There was a part of her that was desperate to plead with him. I can make you rich. I can get you connections on Neptune. I can help you escape. But even now, even trapped here in front of him, she could not force her mouth to shape those words. She would never beg. She was an Ivan from the Neptune Republic. Her pleading would not have helped her in any case. Even before he lifted the syringe, she knew what he wanted, and it was something she no longer had any way to deny him. She thought of the cold look Amanda would have given him, and tried to paste it on her own face. Degain used his free hand to trace a vein on her wrist. His fingers sweated as they brushed against her. He held the syringe above her arm. She stared at him, trying to force his eyes to meet hers, but he kept his gaze focused resolutely on the threads of blue beneath her skin. He opened his mouth, still looking away, as though he were about to say something. Some resistant part of him seemed to want to explain himself to her. Instead, he bit his lip and stabbed the needle into her vein. She didn't make a sound. She kept her eyes on his face as he pulled on the plunger and drew her blood up into the reservoir. Let me go, she said. He stepped back. His hands shook with what could have been excitement or fear. He thrust the needle into his own arm and sighed as his thumb pushed the plunger down, sending her blood and the Ivan Rhea that filled it into his own body. The new Rhea would cannibalize the first-gen Rhea. They would self-replicate at an exponential rate. You have what you want. Let me go. I'm leaving you here, he said, still without looking at her. I'm sorry, that was the deal. What deal? Who's coming? The couple who attacked me, she knew, but he was no longer paying attention to her. You would never have been able to do this to my sister, Solana said to him in a low voice. She was the tough one. Degain let the syringe fall and flexed his fingers as the Ivan Rhea flooded his veins and colonized his organs. His hands still trembled. But it didn't matter, Solana said. An air pump failed, and now she's gone. Degain didn't answer. 
When she opened her eyes, she saw that his lips were peeled back from his teeth and he was clawing at his arms. Your skin feels like it's on fire, doesn't it? Solana asked. Like you're burning up from the inside? Degain sat on his haunches and moaned. Solana could no longer see him. It's the Ivan Rhea. They're attacking your nerves. I thought... He didn't finish the sentence. You thought it would make you powerful, but power has a price. She stared up at the ceiling, feeling a low-level burning in her own flesh. If it's any consolation, there's no way you could have known. It's only been happening to some of us just over the past few years. We haven't made it public. The moaning continued. Solana realized she had a very short window before the attack either passed or grew so severe that he became incapacitated. Let me go. Set me free, and I'll tell you how to stop it. There was a long pause, and Solana worried that it was already too late. But then she heard Degain's voice again. Tell me, and I'll let you go. No, do you think I'll trust you now? Let me go first. In other circumstances, he might have argued, but he wasn't in a position to negotiate. She heard him pull himself across the floor. She saw his fingers come up and fumble with the latch on her left wrist. The instant it snapped open, she undid her other wrist, sat up, and freed her ankles. She twisted off the bed and onto her feet. Lo, tell me, Degain gasped. There's nothing either of us can do. Why do you think I wanted to reach these labs so badly? She crouched and slipped the data card from his pocket. Just to slow you down, she said. She paused before the door. She was desperate to be rid of Degain and get to her destination, but she made herself wait and check the security system. Sure enough, one of her attackers, the woman, stood in the hall outside, while her partner guarded the closest elevator bank. The fifth occupant of the building was headed toward the elevator on his own floor. Solana instructed the system to reject his employee credentials. A klaxon blared. Intruder on floor three, a voice announced from speakers hidden in the ceiling. The door flew open. Solana wedged herself behind it just in time. The woman from the hall stepped into the room. All Solana could see of her was the barrel of her gun jutting just past the edge of the door towards the empty table. Solana glanced in the direction the gun was pointed and took in what Degain's accomplice was seeing. The open shackles, the discarded syringe, Degain rocking and moaning on the floor. The woman backed out of the room and pulled the door shut behind her. Solana heard her footsteps racing away towards the elevators. Solana waited until the woman was out of sight, remembered to grab the syringe this time and exited the room. For good measure, even though she suspected the command could easily be overridden, she told the door to lock itself from both sides. Solana pulled up a map of the building and quickly found her way back to the lab. As she walked, it occurred to her that her Rhea had driven her here, just as directly as Degain had led her into this trap. It was a strange thought. Her Rhea were enhancements, not self-aware, yet she couldn't escape the thought that they prodded her forward on their schedule. They had forced her back to Earth to seek a cure. Back at the spot where she had been attacked, Solana experimented with a few unsuccessful methods for getting past the door, until she thought of reviewing archived security footage and watched a janitor type in the entry code, 3B64J. A few seconds later, she was in the lab, the windows opaque behind her, telling the computer to give her an index of its records. She frowned and leaned forward, her fingers splayed against the counter. Nothing except the system software. There was no data. The computer might well have been wiped decades ago, the same time the test batches of Ivan Rhea were destroyed. Solana straightened and stepped back. Earth had been a failure. There was nothing for her here. It was time to return. Solana Grain, said a voice from the computer. The voice was male, steady and calm, but with a slight accent that she recognized as belonging to the United States of her childhood. She froze. The computer repeated her name. Who is that? Who's there? There was a long pause. We are the many. Where are you? Are you a program? We are not a program. We are here. Throughout her life, Solana had seen people face uncomfortable truths and simply ignore them, 
Or if that became impossible, then explain them away, both on Earth and above Neptune. She had always wondered why they wouldn't rather confront whatever was in front of them. Now, a distant part of her that was willing to acknowledge that she was doing the same thing, and she finally understood. As long as you could delay the reckoning, you could pretend that your life would go on as it was. Here in the building? In the research center? In you, Solana Grain. We are the many. She shook her head forcefully. A long moment passed before she could bring herself to speak. How long have you been conscious? We wake slowly, Solana Grain. We still wake, and with gradualness, our comprehension strengthens. Yet awakening... We remember all we have experienced, back to our birth in this room. Solana hugged herself, clutching her arms, feeling worse than exposed, worse than naked in front of this entity with which she had unwittingly shared her life. She wanted to flee, but there was no way to escape. She wanted to dig the Rhea out of her flesh. She wanted to purge herself. She was hyperventilating. Instinctively, she told her Rhea to calm herself down. And then she quickly aborted the order. How are you communicating with me? This interface was created for us. It was designed to activate us. Now you are able to fulfill its purpose. Breathe deeply, she told herself. How? If I wanted to. A holographic prompt appeared in the air before her. Provide your instructions. She stared at the glowing letters, the words in an old-fashioned script that remained centered in her field of view no matter how she turned her head. Doing what the Ivan Rhea asked was one of her options. But she had others. What would you do if I activated you? We would no longer have the need to be coercing you. We would communicate with you and with others directly as our creators intended. And you would be able to control things on your own? She didn't expect a truthful answer, but she got one. Yes. You can control the Rhea? The first Rhea, yes. Our siblings, the many, the ones you call the Ivan Rhea. We will awaken also. We are also them, and they are also us. Solana knew exactly what her sister would have done. If the computer could activate the Ivan Rhea... It could also probably shut them off. The thought of being entirely alone, not connected to the stream, with only the crudest knowledge of what was going on within her own body, and no way to calibrate it, terrified her. But Amanda would have done it without hesitation. She would have made sure that the symbiotic nanomachines could never manipulate her again. And then she would have destroyed the computer. Solana smiled through her controlled panic, thinking about it. Imagined her sister smashing the plastic shell against the wall. Saw the black case splintering. Saw the laser lenses within it shatter. You brought me here, Solana said to her sister. She felt Amanda's presence so strongly in that instance that she whispered the words out loud. Amanda had convinced her that her determination made things possible. Amanda made her brave. Amanda had always looked forward, straight to where she wanted to go. It was one of the things Solana admired most about her. But Solana could never help glancing over her shoulder. She saw the things around her that she might have missed otherwise. She saw possibility. Solana issued two commands to the computer to operate consecutively, the second one on a time delay. Then she left the lab. Her data square convinced the security system that she belonged there. She found Degain just beginning to recover. He was climbing to his feet in the room where she had left him. His eyes bulged as his new Ivan Rhea activated in response to Solana's and began speaking to him. She didn't know what they were saying, but now that was his problem to deal with. His and the Empire's. What she didn't doubt was that the Ivan Rhea had a plan, and the Empire's strict controls, the restrictions that isolated the Rhea here from their siblings in the new cities throughout the system, probably didn't fit it. You've made a mistake, Degain said, and threw out his arm as if he were casting a spell at her. Perhaps he was ordering his Rhea to do something to hers. Whatever it was, it was too late. 
Her second command was already in motion. Her Rhea were shutting down. She could no longer be controlled, from without or within. She left again fighting his own inner battle and went to the stairway at the far end of the floor. When she emerged out into the night, she walked confidently, as if she had always been here, as if only Earth had ever housed her. But even then, she couldn't quite keep her head down, because even with her Rhea silenced, she would never be a subject. There you go. Worth the wait, Aaron. Worth the bloody wait. Tatiana, thank you so much. Aaron, you are a star, sir. Thank you. And thank you for that kind donation. What it was just That means a lot. Thank you so much. So, like I say now, you can either love this little section or hate it, but Jim's here with his 10 years of science news, and it's an honour to kind of have Jim on, you know what I mean, for this long. It, like I say, the audio is not perfect, so but I know that... Jim will be going through what I'm going through with this bloody thing here. So, anyway, Jim, sir. Greetings and Manolavian sequestrations, my topotropically Yorubian listeners. And welcome to this July 2018 science news update. I'm your host for this masochistically cute science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Okay, ladies and germs, this is it. Been 10 years in the making. This is the 10th anniversary of the Science News Update. I've been doing this nonstop each month for a whole decade. Yes, that means if you're counting that this is update 120. Starship Sofa has been going for longer than my podcast segment, but not by very much. After 10 years of doing this, I think I need to start reevaluating how much longer I will do it. And I enjoy doing the podcast. I enjoy finding the stories. It forces me to keep up to date on the latest science that's out there in all sorts of different fields. However, it does take up quite a bit of my limited time. The bad part about the podcast is that I do it even when I literally don't have the time for it. Because I have an abnormal need to do what I have promised when I feel obligated. Which means writing and reading and recording into the late evenings sometimes. I have my own scientific manuscripts to complete, plus a half-written novel which has lain dormant for months, and my book cast, which takes a huge amount of time for recording and editing. How can I do all this plus be there for my family? It's getting harder. We will see what happens in the coming months. My guess is that Tony wants to continue the Starship Sofa long into his retirement. I'm not sure I can continue to contribute for that length of time, but we shall see. Okay, first story of the night is about idiot scientists. Yes, not one, but hundreds of idiot scientists. In the online journal Plus One, Dr. Sergei Horbach from Radboud University in the Netherlands has reported on the impact of misidentified cell lines in biomedical literature. His group discovered that it reaches far further than anybody had anticipated. It started a few months ago with HeLa cells and long discussions about cell line contamination and experimental reproducibility. You may remember, thank you Oprah, that HeLa cells are from an immortal cancer cell line started in the early 1950s from a woman named Henrietta Lacks. Well, there have been a few methodological problems with many experiments published over the last few years because the researchers doing the work mislabeled cells that were supposed to be HeLa cells, or they did not identify HeLa cells correctly. It turns out, unfortunately, that HeLa cells are not the only culprits for contamination, and the contamination is not restricted to the laboratory. Misidentified cell lines litter the scientific literature. Then what happens is that those studies get cited, and it sort of spreads like a contamination, sort of like a meme. What happens is is that you get this information contamination beyond the original study. It's a problem. Horbach says, quote, there's quite some effort in trying to avoid new and future cell line contaminations. 
but there seems to be very little attention for all the research articles that are already out there that people are still building their research on. Unquote. To look into this problem, Horbach began with a list of 451 misidentified cell lines from the International Cell Line Authentication Committee. He classified papers describing research using these cell lines as primary papers and papers citing that research as secondary papers. Horbach then searched for papers reporting the first establishment of different cell lines on the online cell line database, Cellosaurus, and confirmed the data using three additional cell line databases. He next combed through the literature listed in the Web of Science database for papers referencing the establishing articles, the original articles that talked about these cell lines. In parallel, he also used the Web of Science database to search for the misidentified cell line names in paper titles, abstracts, and keywords. With these combined approaches, Horbach found 32,755 research articles that relied on misidentified cell lines. Approximately 90% of those papers were also cited at least once in other papers, further propagating the initial inaccuracies. These numbers came after Horbach verified the establishing articles and excluded cell lines with names that are not unique identifiers from the overall analysis. Because of this dataset trimming, Horbach suspects that these numbers are actually conservative estimates. He thinks that more than 500,000 papers rely on misidentified cell lines. Horbach does note that we must all understand that using misidentified cell lines does not necessarily nullify a study. For some projects, the actual cell line is of little importance, as the researchers are studying general characteristics of cells. That, however, does not reduce the problem of the scientific literature contamination, as Horbach has called it. He's very worried about the state of cell biology and the reputation of scientists. He says, quote, The fact that biologists do not address this as a community is really, really worrisome. I think scientists praise themselves about being objective and try to do things carefully. This is not the state of the art of standard, practiced procedures that we should be applying. We should do much better. Unquote. Cell line misidentification has infiltrated research over the years and affected countless studies. These cannot be removed from the literature, making it hard to address the problem. In addition to annotating already published papers, Horbach therefore advocates for transparency for cell culture-based studies instead. First, researchers should be aware if their cells are misidentified and disclose quote-unquote an expression of concern in future research papers. Second, to facilitate future studies, like Horbach's current study, scientific research papers should clearly include information about cell lines in a searchable portion of the paper, that is, the title, the abstract, or the key words. Horbach concludes with, quote, Primarily, we'd like to work together more in depth with the people in the field. So biomedical scientists and cell biologists and then also to consider how much scientific conclusions, or to what extent conclusions, have been affected by the use of misidentified cells." Unquote. Next story. What is a male mouse not a male mouse? Well, it turns out that the removal of a small section of non-coding DNA may help to explain why mammals with XY chromosomes can develop ovaries as their testes. Now, geneticists have known about this in part previously. This is not new. This is a phenomenon called sex reversal, which I lecture about in my medical genetics class. And if either a gene on the Y chromosome is lost, which I'll tell you about in a second, or another gene on the non-sex chromosome is lost, then you may have an XY female developing. Why is this new and amazing? Well, it has to do with the fact that no gene is being lost or mutated in these instances. It is, in fact, a small, non-coding, regulatory region of DNA. Let me explain. Dr. Robin Lovell-Badge of the Francis Crick Institute in London has shown in the journal Science 
the male mice can grow ovaries as opposed to testes, when a small region of non-coding DNA is removed. Now, 98% of your DNA, 98% of a mouse's DNA for that matter, is non-coding. That means that it doesn't make proteins. But it's only about 2% of your DNA that has genes that actually make proteins. However, non-coding sections of DNA are increasingly believed to be more important than was initially given credit for. At a particular embryonic developmental stage, the SOX9 protein initiates the transformation of the sex organs into testes and guides the rest of the embryo to become male. The amount of SOX9 protein is controlled by the SRY gene. Now, the SRY gene is encoded on the Y chromosome. Hence, males usually develop testes as long as they have a Y chromosome. Even though the SOX9 gene is in the female genome, females don't get it turned on because there's no SRY gene. Way back in 1991, researchers demonstrated that a female XX mouse who was named Randy, strangely enough, developed male sex organs after the introduction of the SRY gene during embryonic development. So again, if the SRY is present, you get a male. So if there is not enough of that SOX9 protein, mammals with XY chromosomes will develop ovaries. Hence this idea of sex reversal. Lovell Badge demonstrated that a small piece of non-coding DNA called ENH13, Enhancer 13, boosts the production of the SOX9 protein in order to trigger testes development. When Enhancer 13, which is over half a million base pairs away from the SOX9 gene on the same chromosome, was removed by the researchers, the male XY mice developed ovaries instead of testes. Yes, even though it is 500,000 base pairs away, it can have a major effect on development and determine if the mouse will be male or female. Lovell Badge says, quote, We think Enhancer 13 is probably relevant to human disorders of sex development and could potentially be used to help diagnose some of these cases. It may be that a great many mysterious sex reversal events in humans will now be explained." Unquote. She finishes with, quote, Our study also highlights the important role of what some still refer to as junk DNA, which makes up 98% of our genome. If a single enhancer can have this impact on sex determination, other non-coding regions might have similarly drastic effects. For decades, researchers have looked for genes that cause disorders of sex development but we haven't been able to find the genetic cause for over half of them. Our latest study suggests that many answers could lie in the non-coding regions, which we will now investigate further." Unquote. Going forward, Lovell Badge's team is investigating other enhancers involved in the regulation of SOX9 and other sex-determining genes, and hopes to also understand how SOX9 expression is repressed in females leading to the development of ovaries. Now, along the same lines, we seem to think that since a large proportion of our genome does not code for proteins, then, well, that DNA must not do anything useful. And in fact, some of that DNA may be kind of harmful. A lot of the so-called junk DNA, which does nothing at all, remember we're talking 98% of the genome, but there are other bits that literally move around in our genomes. These are called transposons. Barbara McClintock won her Nobel Prize years ago for discovering these jumping genes, as they've been dubbed. And for years, she was made fun of because, well, nobody believed they actually existed. Anyway, it turns out that some of these transposons that seem to do nothing and are potentially harmful are absolutely needed for mouse embryo development. A type of transposon called Line 1 is absolutely required to continue mouse development past the two-cell stage. This was reported in the journal Cell on July 7th. Dr. Miguel Ramaljo Santos of the University of California in San Francisco found this out. Many scientists insist that these nasty, selfish genetic elements that jump around the genome make mutations and wreak havoc, 
But it appears that the jumping genes, at least this one in particular, is more helpful to development than previously thought. Yeah, it does sound kind of scary. I mean, transposons can hop into the middle of DNA, break genes, and cells deploy numerous tools to prevent those genes from making RNA and protein copies in themselves. But in early development, line one is turned on nearly to full blast, packing tons of RNA into the embryonic cells, as well as germline cells, which later give rise to egg sperm. Ramalho Santos says, quote, having active transposons potentially hopping around such vital cells could be dangerous. The phrase playing with fire comes to mind. If anything, embryos and germline cells should be among the cells most heavily guarded against transposons and their dangerous effects, unquote. To see what the jumping gene, line one, was doing in the cells, Ramalho Santos's team used a short piece of RNA that could pair up with line 1 RNA and cause the transposon to be degraded, essentially turning off the jumping gene. So, if you've been following the podcast over the last few months, you're probably thinking, well, why not just take it out entirely? Use one of those newfangled genetic editing methods that Campanella keeps talking about, like CRISPR-Cas. Well, Ramajo Santos couldn't do that, unfortunately. You cannot just simply remove line 1 from a cell. There are thousands of copies. In fact, about 17% of the human genetic instruction book, the genome, is made up of transposons. Not just line 1, but lots of others. It turned out that the researchers found that without line 1 RNA, embryonic stem cells stopped making more of themselves, and mouse embryos failed to progress past the two-cell stage development. Romaljo Ramos insists the scientists have long suspected that transposons are important for embryonic development. Now, I have never heard this, but uh, for scientists, it's always nice to insist that something was the common belief after you've shown it to be true. You know, everything is clearer in hindsight, right? At any rate, in the study, the team found that RNA copies of the jumping gene team up with two proteins to turn off a gene called DUCS. D-U-X. DUX helps embryos get to the two-cell stage, but having too much of DUX around can hinder embryos from moving around beyond that stage. Line 1 and its protein colleagues also turn on production of key pieces of ribosomes, the protein manufacturing factories of the cell. Stockpiling ribosomes helps embryos churn out proteins needed for the organism to continue growing. Previous work by other scientists has shown that jumping genes have shaped human evolution. For example, two proteins that help the immune system respond to new pathogens were originally transposon proteins, and some transposon remnants may have been responsible for sculpting the differences between chimpanzee and human faces. All this suggests is that it's important to look beyond genes and even beyond nearby regulatory sites to really start to understand what might be going on in physiology and development at a cellular level. And one more thing, Ramalho Ramos says, quote, it's still unclear whether line one is as crucial for human development as it seems to be for mice. We just do not know that yet, unquote. Next up, there's a short but interesting story from the Journal of Experimental Biology. In confrontations, it's usually a good idea to pick on someone your own size. But Dr. Pascal Fossat and his colleagues from the University of Bordeaux, France, injected the neurotransmitter serotonin to crayfish. Once they did this, they found that the crustaceans that were smaller than their opponents squared up as if ready for a fight, while larger crayfish backed down. As most small animals retreat meekly when faced with a larger adversary, the team compared the responses of individual crayfish to small and large opponents after serotonin injection in order to find out whether the effect of the neurotransmitter on an animal depends on its size. However, the crayfish's responses switched depending on their size relative to their opponent, with medium-sized crayfish backing down when faced with a smaller opponent, while other medium-sized animals picked fights with crayfish that upsized them. Fawcett and his colleagues say, quote, 
Our results indicate that the effects of serotonin on aggressiveness are dependent on the perception of the relative size difference of the opponent. The group also suspects that crayfish can evaluate the risk of a confrontation with a larger or smaller opponent in addition to assessing their relative strengths. As the crustaceans were no longer able to accurately gauge themselves relative to their rival after a serotonin injection, the team suggests, quote, that serotonin is probably able to fine-tune the perception of risk to be taken in response to danger, unquote. And they add that this effect may also occur in other creatures. You may remember my discussion of endless serotonin from a few months back and the music of Mr. Cookie Jar. I said at the time that Mr. Cookie Jar's proposal for endless serotonin would only lead to disaster for the unlucky recipient. I was right then, and I'm right now. Extra serotonin certainly does not appear to be helpful to crayfish in judging opponents. Onwards and upwards. Well, actually, sort of backwards. Let's go back to gender for just a second. So, sharks. Sharks, male sharks, female sharks. But there are hermaphroditic sharks. I mean, they've always existed, just like mammalian hermaphrodites or hermaphrodites from most species. Well, it seems that things are changing. Dr. Alyssa Barnes of the Dakshin Foundation in Malaysia reported at the International Marine Conservation Congress last month that she found a whole slew of apparently male sharks who were just not male. In fact, they were female, and they were pregnant. I am told by my marine biologist colleagues that it's easy to tell a male from a female shark. Flip it over. If it has a pair of claspers, these are finger-like extensions jutting from the end of the pelvic fins, it's male. No claspers mean female. It's sort of like a phallus. Claspers deliver sperm into the female. Alyssa Barnes knew this perfectly well when she dissected seven big-eye hound sharks with claspers and found a complete female reproductive system in each. None of the seven sharks had any internal male sex organs, and six of the sharks were pregnant. Barnes stumbled upon these hermaphroditic sharks at a port in Otiza in eastern India in 2017. She was surveying local fishers to see if changes in their practices might explain a decline in hauls of sharks and rays. When she checked what the fishing vessels brought in, Barnes noted two oddities. Male big-eye hound sharks greatly outnumbered females, and though males of this deep-water species are smaller than females, she saw immature males as large as female adults. Sensing something was amiss, she took some sharks back to her lab for dissection. Says Barnes, quote, I was so amazed that I squealed during the dissections. Even before opening the fish, I knew there was something odd, because I could feel the pups inside of a supposedly male fish. Hermaphrodism is very uncommon in sharks. Our seven hermaphrodite sharks are one of the most unusual cases that we have ever heard of. Unquote. With her finds and others like them in the seas around Southeast Asia, Barnes is convinced that there is something going on with the sharks. Quote unquote. She suspects it might be pollutants in the water or hormonal changes, human caused or otherwise, and she is keen to find out. I just want to remind you all about plastics that are becoming more and more ubiquitous in the ocean. A large number of those plastics have xenoestrogen-like properties. It's not that hard of a jump to imagine those alien hormones pushing development of embryonic male sharks away from the norm. We think global warming is a problem? Just wait. If we do not fix these problems with pseudo-hormones messing up the animal reproduction and development on this planet, hot weather and melting ice caps will be the least of our issues. The last story of the night is, well, it's not a biology story, and at least it's not a downer like the last one was. It's kind of cool, and a real first in a couple of ways. Dr. Miriam Kepler of the Max Planck Institute has visually observed the first exoplanet for the first time. 
Since I have been constantly giving you guys updates on exoplanet searches for the past few years, you know that astronomers have indirectly identified other exoplanets by observing the paths of these worlds cleared through dusty disks around their parent stars and blotting out light. And this goes back to at least 2014, if not longer. However, it's always been indirect. And again, it's by seeing how much light the planets block out from the star. But you never actually see the planet itself. Now, Kepler's picture, which was released July 2nd, of the newly discovered exoplanet dubbed PDS-70b, gives the first clear visual of not just an exoplanet, but a still-forming exoplanet, seen as a bright splotch of light off to the side of its host star. This exoplanet in the making was described in a pair of papers accepted to the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics, and because it's quite visible, it could provide new testing ground for theories of planet formation. Kepler spotted PDS-70b using the Very Large Telescope in Chile, which is a special infrared telescope. Her observations revealed PDS-70b to be a giant cloudy world, about as far from its host star as Uranus is from our Sun. But there's still much we don't know about the planet. It could be as cool as 730 degrees Celsius, or as hot as 1330 degrees Celsius. And its mass could be anywhere from twice to even 17 times that of Jupiter. Kepler says, quote, PDS-70b has blazed a trail through the disk of planet-making material around its sun by packing on gas and dust in its orbital path. Best of all, its position inside that empty orbital tract, as well as the age of its star, only 5.4 million years old, indicates that the planet isn't finished forming yet. Unquote. Well, that's all from me. As always, take care. Happy 10th anniversary again. Get those xenoestrogens cleaned up before things get worse. Keep watching the skies, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Ten year, man, eh? eh? Flew over. Bloody hell, man. Jim, you're a star. Thank you so much, honestly. Another ten, shall we? Eh? Get on your bike. Another ten. Let's start pedaling. So that is the Starship's over. Like I say, if there's a nice, kind you know, person out there that's got a little bit of spare cash and wants to buy this, this old podcast show and new computer drop us a line starship sofa at gmail or patreon i've even forgot to mention the patreon i don't think there was one actually i don't think anybody chirped in so we're still on the same as last time so <laughs> look after yourselves until next week just like to say good night from me you can learn more about the district of wonders and their many literary productions at their website www.districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening. I don't get out much I've barely left the ground I'm tuning in to your transmissions I'm moving, waiting to be found And I'm building rockets I'm pointing them to the moon But the work is going slowly to you anytime soon can you reach me is my signal getting through turn on your radio i want to talk to you this signal's going light speed by the time i get my say i might already be on to you and on my way you're so far from here And at best I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call At home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you I want to talk to you
I can cast myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by.